What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Malari. So I waited to record an episode over the last few days out of respect for Demar Hamlin. I just felt like it was only appropriate to wait for positive news about him in order to record another episode. We got great news today, earlier this afternoon, out of the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, which was awesome. So I'll recap uh, what they said earlier today about Hamlin and his current condition. So Monday night, Buffalo Bills safety Demar Hamlin collapsed in the field and went into cardiac arrest. He needed CPI and to be resuscitated on the field. It was such a scary scene in a moment that really changed the game of football. In the current moment, and who knows, probably forever as well, the Bills-Bengals game was a matchup that was so highly anticipated. But once Hamlin went down after making a tackle on T. Higgins, the game of football, the NFL playoff seedings, Burrow versus Allen, all of that became irrelevant. All of that was irrelevant, and rightfully so. It was all about Hamlin's well-being, and that was what's most important at the time, and that's what's most important at the end of the day as well. That's all that matters. It was a life-and-death situation. I just want to give props to the Bengals head coach, Zach Taylor, and then also Bills head coach, Sean McDermott as well, for suspending the game and then also ignoring the reported NFL's five-minute warm-up that they try to have after the ambulance left with Hamlin. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to try to play after something like that happened, so it was really only right to suspend the game and focus on Hamlin since that was so much more important. So obviously such a scary situation, and at the end of the day, the Bills really only cared if Hamlin was all right, and that's the same situation for the Bengals. Joe Burrow said it yesterday in his press conference. Really, at the end of the day, the Bengals and the Bills are united. They didn't care about the outcome of that game. Whatever the Bills wanted to do with that game, whether they call it a tie, a forfeit, a no-show, the Bengals were right there with them. Whatever the Bills wanted to decide to do, the Bengals were with them. And I liked that McDermott and Taylor also sent both teams to the locker room. I felt like at the end of the day, you can't stay on the field after that happens. And McDermott said today in his press conference that he was going to leave it up to the team to decide if they wanted to play. And they made the right decision not playing because I don't know how you can get back on the field and play when your brother is in a life or death situation like that. A teammate that was so beloved and someone that was a leader on the team was third in the team in tackles this year. And also third in defensive snaps as well played. So at the end of the day, when you have a teammate like that that goes down, and especially an injury like this, this is an injury that was so unprecedented. I mean, there's injuries every game where guys break their leg, guys break fingers, guys hurt their ankles, guys get concussions. That happens every single game. But obviously, at the end of the day, any injury you don't want, you don't wish an injury upon any player. But this one was just different, where at the end of the day, I don't think either team wanted to go back to playing. And they made the right decision choosing not to play, even though there was an hour wait before the NFL ended up announcing that the game would be indefinitely suspended. I think at the end of the day, they made the right decision, even if it took that hour. I'm happy that the Bills and the Bengals didn't have to go back on that field and play. And credit to ESPN's crew. Adam Schefter, Lisa Saltes, Joe Buck, Troy Aikman, Susie Kolbar, Ryan Clark, Booker McFarland, Scott Van Pelt. I mean, the way they all dealt with the situation that was just so unprecedented was honorable and impressive because ESPN kept throwing Adam Schefter, Booger McFarland, and Susie Colbert out to talk. At the end of the day, they weren't really getting any news about Hamlin's situation. They only just knew Hamlin ended up going to the hospital and was resuscitated on the field after nine minutes of getting CPR treatment. There was no updates. They were just forced to talk and really break down the whole situation. Ryan Clark was great. The way he came on to ESPN after the game 
was indefinitely suspended, he came out and talked about what it was like from a player's perspective. And at the end of the day, Booker McFarland pointed that out too, that these guys are players, they're living their dream of playing in the NFL, but they still want to compete in the field and go home to their families that night. Hamlin suited up that day not knowing what was going to happen. Everyone that went to that game was excited for a great matchup, and no one knew that would happen. It just proves that at the end of the day, everything in life is so precious, and you really can't take anything for granted. So now to update everyone at Hamlin's current medical state, the University of Cincinnati Medical Center said Hamlin has made tremendous progress. His vitals and organs both look good, and he has movement in both his feet and his hands. So that's the best news you could get. And having him be neurologically intact and have his lungs showing great progress, even though he's still intubated and he can't speak, he can still write on a whiteboard. And actually the first question he asked when he awakened yesterday on the whiteboard was, did we win the game? And Dr. Pritz at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center said, yes, you won the game. You won at the game of life. And it just proves that we really can't take anything for granted at the end of the day. And Hamlin has so much strength to obviously fight through that and to be in that situation and wake up and the number one question you have is, did we win the game? He really cared about his teammates more than he cared about his own current condition, obviously, and he wanted to know if they won the game. So, obviously, he's a team player, clearly. I mean, even though he had everything that happened to him, the main thing he asked about when he woke up was, did we win the game because he cared about his team and whether or not they got the win. But one thing that was so heartwarming about this whole situation was that it brought so much unity across the NFL Fans of every team, whether you're the Bills, you're the Bengals, you're a Giants fan, Patriots fan, New York Jets fan, Pittsburgh Steelers fan, fans in general, in the NFL and then fans in the whole entire world of sports, athletes in general, the whole world, everyone is united in support here of DeMar Hamlin. And it was just really nice to see the support that he got. So very good news, obviously, and it shows that all the support that DeMar Hamlin did receive and thoughts and prayers really worked out. So... Hopefully he continues to improve and hopefully in the next day or two we get some more positive updates about his current medical state. So per reports today, the Bills-Bengals game from Monday night will not be resumed and will be considered a no contest. There's not been a decision on how to fix the AFC playoff seedings. Obviously with the Bills and the Bengals only playing 16 games, the NFL has to come up a way to figure out a way to fix the seedings. They could add an eighth team to the playoffs. That's what I'm hearing, that they could add an eighth team in the AFC and the NFC and eliminate the first round bye. They could decide seedings based on a win percentage instead. We'll see in the coming days what they choose to do, but as of now, the Bills will be hosting the Patriots this weekend in Buffalo, and the Patriots are in a win-and-in situation where if they win that game against the Buffalo Bills, they will earn a playoff spot. If the NFL were to choose to stay with their current format for playoffs, the Chiefs are more likely than not be the number one seed in the AFC. All they got to do is win on Saturday versus the Las Vegas Raiders. Also, this means the Bengals would win the AFC North. So the Sunday matchup between the Ravens and the Bengals would not determine who wins the AFC North. The Bengals, no matter what, if they were to stay with the current format in the NFL playoffs, the Bengals would win the AFC North no matter what happens in Sunday's game against the Ravens. But that also means the Bengals can't get the number one seed. If the Bengals were to have won on Monday night versus the Bills and then also beat the Ravens on Sunday and the Chiefs were to have lost in Week 18 on Saturday versus the Raiders, the Bengals would have been the number one seed in the AFC, but that's no longer possible with the current playoff format with the cancellation of the game. There's another scenario where the NFL could add an eighth team to each playoff race, 
add an eighth team in the AFC and the NFC to keep it even where there's no first-round bye. There's also another scenario where the league could have a neutral site for the AFC title game, and that's if the game had two teams that were affected by the current Bills and Bengals cancellation. And there's another scenario pointed out by Adam Schefter on ESPN where the number one seed could get to pick home field advantage or first-round buy. And I think a first-round buy is more important at the end of the day since you get to keep your place healthy for an extra week. But we'll see what the NFL does. Obviously, there's nothing set in stone yet, so I'll keep you guys updated on the current situation, what the NFL chooses to do in the coming days. So now I'm going to transition to the NBA, give you guys a look into the NBA landscape over the past week or so. I'll break down some important games, break down some teams that have been playing hot, and then I'll transition to college basketball and talk about some big matchups over the past few days that have gone down and also preview a few games with one of them being tonight and then one on Saturday. So I'll start off with the NBA. The Brooklyn Nets just snapped their 12-game winning streak. The Nets lost for their first time in nearly a month last night to the Chicago Bulls. This was the first game for the Nets in the Durant-Irving era where they had a blank injury report, which just shows, I mean, over the last few seasons now, the Nets have been plagued by injuries. Whether it was James Harden, Ben Simmons sitting out, Kevin Durant being hurt, Kyrie Irving's vaccine situation also getting injured as well. The Brooklyn Nets just have not had any stability on their roster injuries-wise at all in the last few years. And that obviously shows with this being the first game in the Durant-Irving era where they had a blank injury report. So pretty impressive they got that even though they ended up getting a loss last night. Still impressive of a run they had, 12-game winning streak. They were 12-1 in December, averaging a league-best 119.7 points per game in the month of December and led the league also in field goal percentage in December 54% and was shooting 42.2% from three-point range in the month of December, which also led the league as well. Their 54% field goal percentage was the highest for a team in a single month in the last 30 years, with the last team shooting over 54% being the Golden State Warriors back in February of 1992. Over the last 18 games, the Brooklyn Nets are 16-2 and they currently hold the second seed in the Eastern Conference. I know the Eastern Conference, for the most part, was for the season, and even for the first couple months of the season, everyone was just talking about the Boston Celtics and the Milwaukee Bucks. But at the end of the day, I think you've got to talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers, and you have to talk about the Brooklyn Nets. Those are two teams right there. They're going to be right there down the wire. They're going to be right there next to those two teams for fighting in the Eastern Conference, or who's going to end up in the Eastern Conference Finals and get a chance to play in the NBA Finals. The Nets have been led heavily by Kevin Durant over his last 12 games, averaging 30.1 points per game, 6.8 rebounds, 5.6 assists, with 1.1 steals per game and .9 blocks per game, shooting 42.2% from three and 60.1% from the field in general. Durant's been unreal. Obviously, can't really deny his talent or his ability. He's unstoppable when he's on. He's been on as of late. Kyrie Irving has had a pretty good season as well for the Nets, averaging 26.2 points per game in 28 games played. Remember, he only played 29 games all of last season. He's already played 28 games this season. So this Nets team is going to be better than they were last year, obviously, and you can see that with how good they're playing already with Kyrie averaging 26 a game, Durant averaging 30 over his last 12 games and 29 on the year. Pretty impressive offensive team, as you can tell. And they're deeper than they were last year as well. I mean, they made some moves in the offseason getting Royce O'Neal and getting a couple other guys as role players for the Nets team around Durant and Irving. Obviously, Patty Mills is still there. Getting Joe Harris back healthy is huge. Nick Claxton's been playing well. So this Nets team's different, and they're going to be a team that's right there down the end. They're going to be right there, down to the wire, competing for the Eastern Conference Finals. So now I'm going to transition to the Sacramento Kings and talk about De'Aaron Fox, who's been on a tear as of late. 
averaging 23.9 points per game in the season, 4.6 rebounds, 5.9 assists, and shooting 50.4% from the floor. His last 10 games played, averaging 27.1 points per game, 3.9 rebounds, and 6.4 assists. He led Sacramento to a huge win on Tuesday night with 22 points in the fourth quarter. That's a career high for him in a single quarter. With 37 points in the game as a whole and the game-winning shot with two blocks, six assists, and a 68% field goal percentage with that win coming on Tuesday night on the road at the Utah Jazz. The Kings end up winning that game 117-115. to 115. De'Aaron went on a huge fourth quarter run, had 14 points in the last five minutes and 51 seconds of the game, scoring 10 of the last 12 points for the Sacramento Kings. And if you watch those highlights, his mid-range shot has become elite. It was always good. He was never the best three-point shooter or free-throw shooter, but he's been getting better at both. But his mid-range shot has become elite. It's lethal now. De'Aaron became just the fifth player in the NBA this season with 22 points or more in the fourth quarter in a single game. He now leads the NBA in clutch field goals made with 37. And to be considered clutch time, it means when your team is either within five points, whether up by five or down by five, within that range of five points, with five minutes to go. De'Aaron leads the NBA right now in clutch field goals made with 37. He also leads the league in clutch field goal percentage, shooting 62.5%, 35-56 in games in clutch time. And he's also the third most points in the NBA with 89 points in clutch time on the season, which is third best in the league. The Kings currently right now are fifth in the Western Conference at 20-17 and 17 and have been showing tremendous progress in their rebuild, which obviously they've been rebuilding for years now. Two decades, they haven't made the playoffs. The last time the Kings have made the playoffs was the 2005-06 season. 05-06 season was the last time the Sacramento Kings made the playoffs. And this season looks like it could be the year they break the curse. So now I'm going to transition to the Los Angeles Clippers and start with this question. What is Tyron Lue doing with this Clippers rotation? Last week against the Celtics, Terrence Mann played just four minutes in the first half and basically nothing in the second half. Nothing. And I'm going to break down what happened in that game in just a second. But Terrence Mann should be playing in crunch time. In crunch time, Terrence Mann is one of the most important players in the Clippers because you know you're going to get good defense out of him and you know he's only going to take good shots. He's a reliable player. At the end of the day, the Clippers made the Western Conference Finals two years ago now. Because of Paul George and Terrence Mann, how well they played together. Obviously, Reggie Jackson was a big part of that too, and Nick Batum and some other pieces. But at the end of the day, not playing Terrence Mann in a close game in the second half, I don't know what Ty Lue's doing. I think at the end of the day, all the criticism that's been around him now for a month, which I wasn't really on board with it for a little bit until probably the last week, he's got to figure it out. And I know a lot of people are calling for him to lose his job. I don't think we have to go that extreme, but you got to figure it out. The Clippers are too good of a team to be losing games down the stretch of a game in the last few minutes because they don't have the right pieces out there. The Clippers have more depth than anyone. You should find a way to put the right pieces on the floor and get a win. That's just the reality of the situation. You need to put the right players out there to get the win. In that game against the Celtics, the Clippers went on a run in the third quarter, outscoring Boston 36-24 in the third quarter. They started the second half on a 9-3 run with three threes. By three different players, Paul George and Marcus Morris and Kawhi Leonard all hit threes. They were down by 10 with three minutes and 36 seconds to go. The Clippers ended up going on a 10-1 run over the next two and a half minutes to make it a three-point game after Kawhi Leonard jump shot. The Clippers were led by mid-range shooting from Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. That's the only thing that really kept them in this game down the stretch. Of course, with the Clippers down by four with seven seconds to go, Marcus Morris decides to drive rather than shoot a three and gets blocked. Then the Clippers were down by three, even before that, with 32.4 seconds to go. 
and Paul George could have pulled up and shot a three. Ended up choosing to drive and got blocked at the rim, just like Marcus Morris, unfortunately. He was shooting so well in the game, Paul George. That's why I wish he took a three or gave it to Kawhi because Kawhi was unstoppable in the game. Looked like Kawhi was back in full form in this game. 26 points off 3-6 shooting from 3. 11-16 from the floor with 8 rebounds, 3 assists, and a block. Norman Powell drove down to the lane with the purpose as well. Played very well, 19 points and 4 rebounds. He's the only guy in the Clippers that really attacks the rim. And that's something that has to change for this Clippers team. The perimeter offense with four guys around the three-point arc with Zubats in the paint is just not sustainable. Someone has to drive and mix it up. This game ended up being another great Clippers-Celtic showdown. Who knows? We'll see that in the NBA Finals, but I know that'd be a great series and something that'd be very entertaining for every NBA fan to watch. Tatum and Brown for the Celtics had 29 points apiece. Jason Tatum had 29 points, 11 rebounds, and an assist. Jalen Brown at 29 points, 7 rebounds, and 2 assists in the game. Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, these were their stat lines. George had 24 points, 4 rebounds, 6 assists, and 2 steals. Kawhi Leonard finished with 26 points, 8 rebounds, and 3 assists. So the Clippers followed up that game with a 1-point loss to the Indiana Pacers that featured a 45-point performance out of Paul George with 9 rebounds, 4 assists, and 3 steals. George shot 7 of 13 from 3. Remember, he was a... Indiana Pacer at the beginning of his career. That's where he started out. So obviously going back home to Indiana, something that's probably going to be a sentimental place to play. Played very well, though. 45 points, 9 rebounds, 4 assists, I said, with 3 steals. Kawhi Leonard played very well in that game as well. 24 points, 5 rebounds, 7 assists, and 2 steals. Once again, in this game, the Clippers only got 9 minutes and 18 seconds out of Terrence Mann. And another guy the Clippers could use, Robert Covington, who only got 8 minutes and 45 seconds in that game. When the Clippers are playing a close game down the stretch, you need guys that are in the game that can help you on the offensive end and the defensive end. And that's what Robert Covington can do, and that's what Terrence Mann can do. Only nine minutes out of both guys. Ty Lue's got to realize these three guard lineups are not working. I love John Wall, but he can't be in the game in the fourth quarter over a guy like Terrence Mann, who's not only an aggressive defender, but can help you on the offensive end as well. I just don't get why Terrence Mann, Robert Covington, and also Amir Coffey aren't getting minutes. These are three guys that were huge for the Clippers over the last season. Terrence Mann out for a couple of seasons, Amir Coffey for the last couple of seasons. Really found a role last season, but hasn't been in the rotation this year. And then Robert Covington, the Clippers, got in a trade last year and played very well for them when he was picked up by the Clippers in a deal with the Portland Trailblazers that landed Norman Powell and Covington in L.A. But the Clippers really have to figure out a way to get Robert Covington minutes and Terrence Mann minutes. And my solution is, in crunch time with three or four minutes to go, Robert Covington plays a Marcus Morris and Terrence Mann plays for John Wall or Reggie Jackson, no matter who the point guard is in the game. If you want to keep Reggie Jackson in the game, that's fine. Go Reggie Jackson, Terrence Mann, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and Robert Covington. Do that then. But I know you need a Vita Zubats in the game in crunch time. That's another thing. I mean, in that game against the Celtics, Zubats sat for probably five minutes from seven minutes to two minutes to go. And I know he had foul troubles, but... At the end of the day, you need him in the game. I don't care if he has five fouls in the fourth quarter at the start of it. You need a guy in the game that can help you and get rebounds. Sit him for a minute or two. Don't sit him for five minutes. That's the problem with the Clippers. They really don't have a backup center, and that's a big weakness on this team. Because you look at it, when they take out Zubats, they're going small ball lineup with three guards in there and a couple forwards, a couple small forwards or a power forward playing center. That just doesn't work. I like Marcus Morris. I like Nick Batum. But neither one of them should be running the small ball center. I think it should be Robin Covington. He's been able to do it in his career, and he's shown he's a great defender and also can help you on the offensive end as well. 
So the Clippers followed up that Celtics and Pacers game with another heartbreaking loss on Monday night, this one being at home versus Miami Heat. They're down by 18 points at halftime. They went on a run in the third quarter, though, outscoring Miami 34-14. The Clippers came out of the locker and played their hardest defense on the year. Very aggressive defense. They forced a ton of bad shots and turnovers from Miami. They ended up going on a 26-4 run in a seven-minute period. That's what got us back in the game. The Clippers on the 26-4 run found themselves outscoring Miami 34-14 in the third quarter, as I said. But the game really came down to the fourth quarter, and the Clippers just did not have enough in the tank to overcome everything they gave up in the first half. I mean, they did go on a great run in the third quarter, but it was not sustainable for them to do that again in the fourth quarter. And yet again, this game showcased another Tyron Lue move that was questionable. Terrence Mann was unreal on both ends of the floor in the third quarter, but played just 53 seconds in the fourth quarter. 53 seconds. That was a garbage time when the game was already over since the Clippers ended up losing this game. 110 to 100. But in the third quarter, Terrence Mann was great. He was great. Four points, three rebounds. Doesn't show up really much on the stat sheet what he was doing, but he played great defense, forced a lot of bad shots. And that's what the Clippers are doing in general. I mean, Marcus Morris even played great defense as well. Forced a lot of bad shots in the third quarter. Paul George shot great in that third shooting 4-4 at the free throw line, 3-6 of six and 3, and 3-7 three of seven from the floor in general, with 3 assists and 2 steals in the third quarter and 13 points. Also added 3 assists as well in that quarter. Reggie Jackson shot pretty well in that quarter as well, 3-4 of four from the floor, and had 7 points with a steal. So the Clippers played great in that third quarter, but then it was questionable why Terrence Mann didn't go back in in the fourth quarter until the last 53 seconds of the game when it was garbage time and the Clippers already done. Questionable call by Tyron Lue not putting him back in the game. And the only offense the Clippers really got in that fourth quarter was Luke Kennard. He was 2 of 2 from the floor, 1 of 1 from 3, with 8 points in that fourth quarter. But the Clippers really need help and they need a spark. And it's about time that Tyron Lue has made the decision to play Robert Covington. Roko was huge for that Clippers team last year, averaging 10.4 points per game, 5.1 rebounds, 1.2 blocks, and 1.3 steals. Obviously, with 1.2 blocks per game, 1.3 steals per game, you could tell he's a great defender. Just watch one game, you could see that guy's an elite defender. He also shot 45% from three for the Clippers last year, averaging 2.1 threes made per game at 4.7 attempts per game as well on average. His best game of the season last year was a 41-point performance against the Milwaukee Bucks where he hit 11 threes in that game. So not only does he spread the floor on offense, but he's an elite defender as well. Tyron Lue did say in a press conference in the last day that Robert Covington will be getting some minutes tonight against the Denver Nuggets, which is huge for this Clippers team. Surprised it took 39 games to realize that Covington should be getting more minutes. It's awful that it took 39 games, but at the end of the day, I'm happy at some point that Lue realized, okay, Rocco needs to get some minutes. He's been inactive or did not play in 18 of 39 games this season. 18 of 39 games, he was a DNP, did not play, or was inactive. Which was my decision. He'd be getting good minutes every single night. He should be in the rotation getting 20 minutes a night. He's a great player and could be starting on most teams in this league because he can spread the floor on offense, as I said. He's a pretty good shooter and also plays great defense. Both of which the Clippers could use. Their offense really isn't there this year, especially when Kawhi Lennon's not on the floor. That offense struggles. When the defense, like Miami did in the first half on Monday night, they locked up Paul George in the first half by sending two guys at him, it forced the Clippers to figure out other ways to move the ball. And the Clippers' offense really runs around Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. Both of them have the ball in their hands a lot of the time. At the end of the day, when the defense focuses on Paul George, it forces other guys to have to make plays, and just no one drives down the lane. Everyone stays around the perimeter. 
When you have a guy like Robert Covington that can shoot a three but also play a little bit in the paint as well and get some boards, that's huge to space the floor. So I'm happy the Clippers finally realized that. So Robert Covington getting minutes tonight, that's huge. Another thing is, Lewis to realize, Terrence Mann has to get minutes. 53 seconds in the fourth quarter the other night when he played great in the third quarter. You just can't have that. John Wall played eight minutes in that fourth quarter. Eight minutes in the fourth quarter the other night. Terrence Mann should have had those minutes. Should have had those minutes. The Clippers have lost three in a row, and they're just looking for a way to spark this team and get back on track. And hopefully tonight is the night against a good team in the Denver Nuggets who have been led by Nikola Jokic, two-time MVP, reigning MVP in the NBA two straight years and could do it a third year this year. We'll see what happens, obviously. And I'll get into that in just a few minutes, who my MVP takes are in the NBA so far this season. So now I'm going to move on to the LA Lakers. They beat a fully healthy Miami Heat team last night without LeBron James and Anthony Davis. The Lakers end up winning that game 112-109. to Russell Westbrook, Dennis Schroeder, and Thomas Bryant came up huge for L.A. in that game. Schroeder finished with 32 points, 4 rebounds, 2 assists, and 4 steals, shooting 53% from the floor and 57.1% from 3. He also had 14 points in the fourth quarter, hit some clutch free throws as well, was 9 of 9 from the line in the fourth quarter, which was huge, and had 22 points in the second half of 5 of 7 shooting from the floor and 3 of 4 shooting from 3. As for Russell Westbrook, he played very well as well. Despite his turnovers, he had 21 points, 9 rebounds, 8 assists, was 8 of 18 shooting from the floor, had 9 points, 3 rebounds, and 3 assists, with 3 steals in the second half. Had some big shots to the Lakers, including an and one layup, with the Lakers only up by 2, with 14.2 seconds to go off an inbounds from Austin Reeves. Lakers ended up getting a lot of minutes out of Russell Westbrook and Dennis Schroeder in the backcourt last night. It really worked out. Both guys played pretty well. As for their frontcourt, Thomas Bryant had 21 points, 9 rebounds, and was 9 of 11 from the floor in 28 minutes. Without AD out there, someone had to step up in the paint, and Bryant just was unstoppable. He was like Anthony Davis in the second half. Felt like he just didn't miss. In the fourth quarter, he was 5 of 5 from the floor with 11 points and 3 rebounds, and every time he got the ball, he scored, as you can tell, 5 of 5 from the floor. They played pretty well on the defensive end as well, even though Bam Adebayo is an absolute force. He did the best he could on the defensive end. Adebayo still got his, but at the end of the day, the Lakers just care about winning. I'm sure that's what Bryant cared about. Russell Westbrook in his last 16 games, he's averaging 13.8 points per game, 7.6 rebounds, 8.3 assists, and .9 steals per game, so just under a steal per game. The Lakers have now won three games in a row, and there's something about last night's win, though, that just felt different. It feels like that win last night could turn the season around. Winning without Anthony Davis and winning without LeBron James, 112-109 to against a fully healthy Miami Heat team. I know the Heat aren't having as good of a season as they did last year. They were in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics, ended up losing that series in seven games. They were the number one seed in the East last year, and then obviously three years ago went to the bubble finals against the Lakers. But this Heat team's still good. They still have talent. So beating them without Anthony Davis and LeBron James – that's a huge positive note. I think that can carry this Lakers team. I'm not sure how far this Lakers team can go, but I think at the end of the day, that's a huge positive note winning three games in a row, especially winning one against a team like the Heat, who just beat the Los Angeles Clippers with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard on the floor. The Lakers just beat them without Anthony Davis and LeBron James, their two superstars. So, I mean, this Lakers team, scrappy win, big win for them. And they got a lot out of their role players. Thomas Bryant, 
Dennis Schroeder played pretty well. And then obviously Russell Westbrook has been great off the bench for the Lakers this season and had 21 points last night. So pretty impressive game. As I said, Dennis Schroeder at 32 points, Russell Westbrook 21, and Thomas Bryant adding 21 points and 9 rebounds in that game. Russ had 21, 9, and 8, and was 8 of 18 from the floor. So impressive win there for the Lakers. As the Miami Heat, Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo had great games as well. Just not enough, obviously. Bam had 30 points, 13 rebounds, and 3 assists with 3 blocks and 2 steals. He's great on both ends of the floor. This was his third game in a row at 30 points. He's averaging 24.6 points per game, 10.5 rebounds per game, 3.1 assists, and has a block per game in his last 18 games. Last 18 games, averaging 25 points, 10.5 rebounds, 3 assists, and a block. That's elite, and that's what that Miami Heat team needs. Jimmy Butler had 27 points, 4 rebounds, 4 assists, and 3 steals. Jimmy had to score more last night and had to take more control of that offense. Since there was a cold shooting night for Tyler Hero, he was 1 of 5 from 3 and only had 9 points in the game, a 4-14 shooting. So Jimmy had to step up, finish the game with 27 points, had a pretty good game. The Lakers are now 17-21 on the year. LeBron James just turned 38 years old on December 30th and had 47 points, 10 rebounds, and 9 assists on his birthday against the Atlanta Hawks in a 130-121 win. He shot 18-27 from the floor in that game against Atlanta, and now in his last 11 games, He's averaging 34.5 points per game, 7.4 rebounds, 7 assists, a 58.2% shooting from the floor. So LeBron's still on, obviously, and them getting a win without him last night is huge for that Lakers team and their momentum. So now to transition to the last storyline in the NBA I'm going to talk about. Donovan Mitchell had a 71-point performance on Monday night. He became the seventh player in NBA history with 70 points in a game. The first to do it since Devin Booker did it in 2017 for the Suns. He led the Cavs to a 145-134 to 134 win over the Chicago Bulls in overtime. He was 22 of 34 shooting from the floor, had 7 threes out of 15 attempts, and had 71 points overall, adding 8 rebounds, 11 assists, and a block in that contest in 49 minutes and 48 seconds of action. He had 42 points in the second half and 13 points in overtime, a 4-4 shooting in overtime and 3-3 three three shooting from 3 in that overtime period. So after halftime, he had 55 points, which is wild. 55 points after halftime. In the first half, he was 5 of 10 shooting from the floor with 3 of 7 shooting from 3 and had 16 points overall with a rebound and 3 assists. Obviously turned up in the second half and turned that game around. I mean, the Cavs were down at halftime. 65 to 47. 65 to 47. They were down by 18 at halftime. Obviously, Devin Mitchell turning up was just too much for that Bulls team to handle in that second half run. And obviously, it was a historic game for Devin Mitchell, one of the best performances that you'll see in the NBA this season. Mitchell's averaging 29 points per game on the year with four rebounds, 4.9 assists, and he's shooting 40.7% from three on the year as a whole. He's a legitimate MVP candidate right now. It's between Luka Doncic, Jason Tatum, and Nikola Jokic to most people. But I think Kevin Durant and Donovan Mitchell got to be right there, in my opinion. And that goes to the Eastern Conference Finals as well. I mean, everyone talked Giannis Antetokounmpo and Jason Tatum, Milwaukee Bucks, Boston Celtics, Eastern Conference Finals. I think the Brooklyn Nets and the Cleveland Cavaliers have to be in consideration. I know most people know the Cavs and the Nets are both good teams. But most people probably wouldn't have them both beating the Celtics and the Bucks in a playoff series. I think it's possible. I really do. I think at the end of the day, I think the Bucks will still be in the Eastern Conference Finals. My prediction was Cleveland versus Milwaukee in the, in the Eastern Conference Finals. I'll still keep that as of now. But as for the MVP race, Jason Tatum, Nikola Jokic, and Doncic are pretty much the top three in most people's eyes. But Durant and Donovan Mitchell are right there. I'd say right now, in my eyes, it's Luka, Mitchell, and Giannis is the top three. Not really sure the order, but I'd say Luka is probably number one right now. And then Jokic at four, 
Kevin Durant at five, Jason Tatum at six. That's my MVP race right now, but obviously it's subject to change with a lot of the season left to go. So now I'm going to transition to college basketball, give you guys some recaps over the past few days. BC hosted Notre Dame a couple nights ago now, got a win 70-63 to over the Irish. BC was down by four at halftime, outscored Notre Dame by 11 in the second half. BC got a huge edge on the glass, out-rebounding Notre Dame 37-26. Obviously, Quinton Post being back for that offense and obviously on defense as well is a huge addition back to the lineup. Notre Dame was outscored in the paint 34-22 by BC as well. So BC just dominated on the glass and in the paint. Point guard Jaden Zachary had a good game for BC. Had 18 points, 4 rebounds, and 3 assists of 7-10 shooting from the floor. And then freshman forward for the Eagles, Prince Oligbe, had 15 points, 7 rebounds of a 5-8 of shooting from the floor. So huge game from Oligbe, huge game from Jaden Zachary. One thing for BC, though, is they continue to struggle from 3, shooting just 16.7% in that game from 3, 2 of 12 from 3 as a team. That's something that needs to improve over the course of the season. They're shooting just 26.5% from 3-point range as a team on the year. And that's a weakness. You have to be able to hit threes, especially open threes. And BC gets a good amount of them since teams are starting to lay back a little bit, let them shoot. Obviously, now you see BC outscored Notre Dame in the paint 34-22 to and dominated the offensive glass and the glass overall, out-rebounding Notre Dame 37-26. to I think teams are going to start to realize BC's beating teams in the paint like they beat Notre Dame, so we have to let them shoot. We have to let them shoot. And obviously, shooting 16.7% from three in that game against Notre Dame, you're not going to win many nights with that three-point percentage as a team in a single game. But BC ended up getting a huge win. Huge win, nevertheless. They were two-and-a-half-point underdogs at home. Now 2-2 two and two in ACC play on the year. 8-7 and seven overall. And they host Duke on Saturday at 1 o'clock. I will be calling that game doing either the play-by-play or the color on WZBC Sports Radio's YouTube station. You can find that on WZBC Sports Radio typing that into the search bar on YouTube. Duke right now is the number 16 team in the country based on the rankings. They just lost last night to NC State on the road, 84-60. Their biggest loss of the season, losing that game by 24 points. They're now 11-4 on the year. In that game, the Blue Devils were down 20-2 at one point in the first 10 minutes of the game. They had 21 turnovers, while NC State only had six. NC State benefited heavily off of those turnovers, scoring 30 points off of Duke's turnovers in that game. Sophomore guard for the NC State Wolfpack, Terquavion Smith was unreal against Duke, shooting 4 of 8 from 3 for 24 points, 3 rebounds, 3 steals, and a block. He was great last year as a freshman for NC State, 16.3 points per game. He averaged as a freshman with 4.1 rebounds, 2.1 assists, and 1.3 steals per game. Even better this year, 18.1 points per game, 3.7 rebounds per game, 5.3 assists, and 1.8 steals per game. He scored in double digits in all 16 games this year for NC State. So pretty impressive run there for him. He's great on the offensive end and the defensive end, as you can tell. And then Jock Joyner played very well for NC State against Duke. 21 points, 6 rebounds, 9 assists, and 2 steals last night, shooting 5 of 10 from 3-point range. So you have Joyner shooting 5 of 10 from 3-point range and Smith shooting 4 of 8 from 3. It's pretty impressive. I mean, they combined 9 for 18 from 3. 9 for 18 from 3. Shooting 50% together from 3-point range. So, pretty good game for both guys. Joyner, he's a 6th-year player. Played 2 years at Cal State Bakersfield before transferring to Ole Miss for 3 years. And now at NC State to finish his collegiate career. Good score, averaging 15.7 points per game, 4.1 rebounds per game, and 1.1 steals per game in the season. NC State now in the year is 12-4, and winning 5 of their last 7 games. As for Duke, they're 11-4 in the year and a 1-2 in their last three games played. They were led by Kyle Filipowski last night in scoring. He had 14 points at the center position for that Duke team. 
Duke and BC have already played each other this year on December 3rd at Duke. Duke ended up getting that win 75-59. BC was down by 12 at halftime. Only trailed the second half scoring, though, by four points. BC did very well on the glass in that game. Only were out rebounding 32-30, which it's usually by a lot more in games against Duke. BC won the turnover battle as well, 10-7, but shot just 37.5% from the floor as a team and 22.7% from three as a team. But obviously, three-point shooting and shooting from the floor in general has been a struggle for BC this year. They were only out-rebounded, though, 32-30, which is a positive note without Quinton Post, and led in second-chance points 22-4 over Duke. That's another thing that's usually the opposite. Duke's usually winning on the offensive glass and getting a ton of second-chance points. And BC outscored them at second-chance points 22-4. So, huge progress, obviously, that BC team, and that's a credit to Earl Grant, how great he's been coaching this team on the year. BC was without DeMont Langford in that game and Quinton Post, so we'll see how they fare against Duke at home this Saturday at 1 o'clock with both of those guys back in the lineup and healthy, ready to go. So now I'm going to break down one of the best college basketball games of the season so far. Number 17 TCU is on the road last night against number 19 team in the country, Baylor. TCU ended up winning that game 88-87. Obviously two great offenses scoring a ton. It's just like Big 12 football, really not much defense. Both teams score a ton. TCU is down by... 10 at halftime, trailed by 17 at one point in the first half. Ended up winning the game, though, winning a huge run in the second half. They were led by Junior God, who I'm a big fan of. I mentioned that before in the podcast. Mike Miles, who has been terrific for the Horned Frogs this year. Had a career-high 33 points in last night's game with two rebounds, four assists, and two steals. And had just one turnover. Considering how much he has the ball, only turned the ball over once is pretty impressive. He shot 12 of 21 from the floor and 3 of 7 from 3. And one thing about Miles' game is that he's lethal on the offensive end. He can create his own shot. He can shoot a mid-range shot and drive down the lane with intensity. He can shoot from three. He can shoot a mid-range shot. He can drive down the lane. He can do everything it takes to score at the collegiate level. He's going to be great in the NBA as well. He plays my exact style of basketball that I like. And everyone knows I'm a big Clippers fan because I like the way they play the game and they give it their all every possession. Miles and the TCU team in general, the entire roster, everyone gives it their all every possession. Every possession. And Miles is a great player overall. I mean, he hustles a ton, but what he can do with the offensive end is ridiculous. And that's what makes him stand out most to people is his ability to score. Obviously, I'm a big fan of hustle, but at the end of the day, his scoring ability is undeniable. Undeniable. Best player in the Big 12, in my opinion, because no one can do what he does on a nightly basis. 18.6 points per game on the year, shooting 52.1% from the floor. Last year averaged 15.4 points per game, which is pretty good. It improved his field goal percentage this year heavily. 38.2% he shot from the floor last year. He's shooting 52.1% this year. So his scoring went up from 15.4 points per game to 18.6 this year. His shooting went up from 38.2% last year to 52.1% this year. So obviously he put a lot of work in in the offseason. And that run that they had in March Madness last year, which Mike Curley, sports guru, liked them because of how hard they fought in the Big 12 tournament last year. That run in the March Madness tournament last year was just the beginning of what they're doing this year. And another guard in that backcourt, Damian Barr, for TCU, has been great this year. Averaging 12 points per game and 2.4 steals on average per game on the year. Great on the defensive end, plays with intensity. And one thing you know about Barr is that you're going to get intensity on both ends, offense and defense. He gives you his all every single possession as well. And it's such an elite backcourt between Miles and Ball. I think it's one of the best in the nation. They don't get really much respect and really much praise in the media. But I think it's about time TCU starts to get their respect. 
I mean, that was a statement win last night, being down 17 in the first half, being down 10 at halftime, and coming back and winning. And they had some big shots. Chuck O'Bannon Jr. hit a huge three for TCU. The Horned Frogs were down by two with under 10 seconds to go. Mike Miles drove down the lane, kicked it out to O'Bannon. O'Bannon hit a huge three, gave TCU a one-point lead with four seconds to go. Then Baylor had a chance, trailing in the game, being down by one point, and had the option to either try to shoot a mid-range shot or drive down the lane. Keontae George for Baylor ended up trying to take a layup. He ended up getting blocked by TCU Xavier Cork to sail the deal for TCU and give them the win. George had a great game though for Baylor, 27 points, 6 rebounds, and 2 assists with the steal. He shot 6 of 13 from the floor and 4 of 7 from 3-point range, which is pretty impressive. As for TCU, where they stand on the end now, they're 13-1 on the season with 11 wins in a row, 11-game winning streak, very impressive. This team's legit. I think they deserve more respect. I think they can win the national championship, and there's something about their hustle that's just undeniable. Watch out for them in March. Even if they don't win the national championship, I think they will make a run in March. So be careful of that team come March when you're making your March Madness brackets. As a Baylor, they fall to 10-4 on the year with two losses in a row now. So the last game I want to recap was UConn's game versus Providence yesterday at Providence. Providence ended up earning that victory yesterday, getting their eighth win in a row. Huge win for them, winning eight straight games. Over a great team in UConn. UConn's the number four team in the country, as they said. Ended up getting a huge win, 73-61, winning that game by 12 points. They were led by Bryce Hopkins, a Kentucky transfer who played one year at Kentucky, then transferred to Providence this year. At Kentucky last year, didn't get many minutes. 28 games played, averaged six and a half minutes per game. This year at Providence, though, he's been great for them, starting 15 out of 15 games, getting 32.9 minutes per night, 15.7 points per game on average, with nine and a half rebounds per game, 2.4 assists, 0.9 steals per game, and also shooting 49% from the floor and 35% from three. Pretty impressive performance, though, from him last night, 27 points and five rebounds. As for UConn, they lost now two games in a row. They were 14-0 before losing to Xavier the other night on Saturday and now lost to Providence yesterday. I liked what I saw from Providence in this game. I liked them before the game. I even told the sports guru Mike Hurley I had Providence over UConn and TCU over Baylor. Two underdog picks, both getting a win yesterday. I like both those teams yesterday. Providence is now 9-1 in their last 10 games. Providence is now 13-3 on the year. UConn falling to 14-2. But as for what happened in that game, though, yesterday, Providence had the momentum the entire game. All 40 minutes, Providence had the momentum. I just think, at the end of the day, when you're an underdog playing against the number four team in the country, especially being home and being a really good team like Providence, you get up for that game. You get up for it. I mean, they were only up by three points at halftime. Pulled away in the second half, though, outscoring UConn in second half, scoring by nine points. It just felt like at the end of the day that Providence just was ready for UConn. And UConn showed some weaknesses. UConn showed some weaknesses. Even though Jordan Hawkins for UConn had a very good game, 15 points, six rebounds, and two assists, they could not stop Bryce Hopkins on the defensive end. UConn could not stop Hopkins. Hopkins had 27 points, five rebounds. Noah Locke had 17 points and three rebounds. For that Providence team. And then Ed Croswell as well. Had 13 points and 13 rebounds. There were a lot of flaws in that UConn team. A lot of flaws. I think Providence is the better team. And obviously they showed it yesterday. Huge win for Providence. And obviously it's something for them to build upon. For the rest of the season. So the last thing I'm going to talk about. Is a game preview for UMaine tonight. They are playing UMass Lowell on the road at 6 o'clock in Lowell. UMaine 6-7 and seven on the year. While UMass Lowell is 13-2. Maine currently 11.5 point underdogs. In this game, which I see them covering that. I think they can honestly win this game. I think they'll be in it down the stretch to the end, no matter what. Even if they were to lose, I think they'll be in that game. But there's something about that main team, though, that every single night, they can win 
any given game. They're a scrappy team. They give it their all every possession. And I think when they're underdogs, I think they play better. They were 20-point underdogs versus BC, end up winning that game. So this game tonight, being 11-point underdogs, I see them coming up big. I think they can win this game. And at the very least, I think they cover that 11.5-point spread. They're on the road. They've had a break now since they've last played. They lost last week, though, against Harvard. Losing that game by one point at home last Wednesday. Drew Zapitis was huge for Maine. He had an elite three in crunch time to send the game to overtime, finished with 19 points, five rebounds, and eight assists. Maine also was led by Callan Tynes. He had 14 points and four assists. Chris Ledlam for Harvard had a great game, 27 points and 15 rebounds. He was a lot for UMaine to handle on the glass and honestly in the paint as well. I'm impressed with what Maine did in that game, though. They were five and a half point underdogs, and they stayed in that game the entire time. It was 33-33 at half. Second half scoring was 34-34. And in overtime, they were only outscored by one point, losing that game 74-73. Maine was with them the entire stretch. Even though they're 4-6 and six in their last 10 games and have lost three in a row, including that one-point loss to Harvard, I think that's something to build upon. They were in that game to the end. They were right there every step of the way. And one thing that they have to be ready for tonight against UMass Lowell is that UMass Lowell can score a ton. They're averaging 79.8 points per game and only allowing 63.1 points per game. As a main, 70.5 points per game on offense, allowing 68.5 points per game on average. Where main can take advantage of UMass Lowell, though, is UMass Lowell's turnover woes. The Riverhawks turn the ball over 15.2 times per game. Maine's only turned the ball over on average 12.2 times per game, which isn't elite, but it's definitely better than 15.2, obviously. Where UMass Lowell wins games, though, is shooting the ball. They shoot the ball very well, 38.6 from three as a team, and they play very well in the paint, averaging 14.3 points per game at second-chance points and 42.1 points per game in the paint. That's where UMass was dominated by Ohio State a few weeks ago in the paint. Ohio State had 58 points in the paint in that game. 58 of Ohio State's 95 points in that game came in the paint. UMass only had 28 points in the paint. So they're outscored in the paint by Ohio State by 30 points. But I think UMass going to be ready for this game against UMass Lowell tonight. Should be a good game. Excited for them to come out and hopefully get a win. Go Black Bears as always. Anyways, it does conclude today's episode. I do apologize if I sound sick. I've been battling a cold now for the past three or four days. But as always, I try to push through it, try to get a quick episode out to the best of my ability. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this. Thank you guys as always for taking the time to listen to this. As always, I appreciate it and hope you guys have a good one. Thank you.